0: And welcome. I'm Boris Lamont, and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode we are speaking with Michael Brakovich from Kumu River, which is just to the west of Auckland in New Zealand. Michael's family has been on the property for what is now a third generation and over that time have tried a number of different varietals and have come out with some award-winning and internationally recognized wines. So, right now let's go have a chat with Michael. Hello Michael. Good morning. Boris. Welcome to the um, podcast. Thanks for coming in. We appreciate you taking the time to Pleasure. to do that. Yes, yeah, so your your family has a little bit of a bit of history in, in, the, in wine in New Zealand? Certainly does. Yeah.
1: We've been there for a while. Well, they've been in Kumu since 1944, but prior to that, my father's father had come out to New Zealand as a gum digger in the far north, and stayed there for 15 years before he went back as a young man with a bit of money in his pocket to what is now Croatia, of course in those days was part of Yugoslavia. He um, he got married, started a family, my father was born in 1925 in uh, the village of Zivagostja. Um and then Things got pretty bad in that part of the world just before leading up to World War Two. Um, so my grandfather decided to go back to New Zealand, and uh, he he went back on his own and, and went back to the far north to the other life that he knew very well, which was gum digging. But as a much older man, and then through the help of uh, his brother-in-law, brought out the rest of the family, uh, and they arrived in 1938 which uh, very fortuitous to to come out before the war started. Yep. And um, they went back on the gunfield for a while, but, but then there was no future in that, so they, they decided it was my, my grandfather, my grandmother, my father and his two sisters. So they uh, gradually migrated south and ended up in Henderson, working for other Dalmatian families in Lincoln Road and in the Henderson Valley, until they had saved up enough money, which was... Um, Two hundred pounds was enough to put a down payment on the property. We still have in Kumeu.
0: Wow. Okay, so and, and they, they were moved. working for other Dalmatians in, yep. in
1: wine industry, or yep. in, in water wine. Water so, yep. so they worked at uh, Pleasant. I'm uh, sorry, yeah, they worked at Pleasant Valley mm-hmm. for the Elash family, mm-hmm. uh, also the Sholian family in in Lincoln Road, and uh, and Majorans as well. So. Uh, when they had bought the property in Coomew, my father used to uh, bike back to Henderson uh, on a Monday morning and work for the week at right, Yeah and, and then come back home and work on his place yeah. on the weekends. And, yeah. uh, so it was, it was built up from those early days, yeah. just at the latter end of World War II. And by the middle of the 1950s, they, they paid off the mortgage and, and they were doing okay, but it was it wasn't really until the 60s that the wine side of things uh, started to really expand. Um, up until then, they they still milked cows, they grew pumpkins, right. they, yeah. they had a small orchard, grew strawberries as well. But th- it was the 1960s that, that that Dad really got into making wine in a in a largish way. Uh, in those days, most of the wine sold was fortified, so sherry and port style wines. And it wasn't until the late 60s that table wine became much more of a focus. He always made dry red wine and and, and gained quite a reputation for that, his old Cumieux red dry, he called it. But by the mid-60s, he had planted some Chardonnay by then. Right, okay. At about that time, Muller-Turgau, or as we knew it, riesling Silvana was, was the, the big grape variety, and, and that really uh, helped the wine sector expand into... Uh, so-called table wines, mm-hmm. and yeah. Turgail was very instrumental in changing the tastes of a lot of New Zealanders away from beer towards table wine, but it was a sweetish, fruity style of wine, which hardly exists these days, No, but it was pivotal at the time, mm. um, and then through the 1980s and into the 90s, it was Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay and uh, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, all, all of these other better varieties that, that started to really make an impact. And of course, uh, Sauvignon Blanc on a national scale has become the most important. Yeah, But for us in Kumu, uh, Chardonnay is, is the thing and that, that took us a long time to realise. We, we thought initially back in the early 80s that Merlot was going to be the variety for us and, and to that end, I was very fortunate to be able to work in Bordeaux uh, for a, a firm that, that does specialise in Merlot, um, but Chardonnay really shone through f- from a very early stage, and it's become our major major variety.
0: But you did put in some other varietals as well, along or some were put in along the way and tried out.
1: Yes, we, we did quite a large scale a bit of cultural experiment, if you like. We, we we planted Cabernet Sauvignon, we planted Cabernet Franc, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, Pinot Gris became a big thing later on, um, but but that's about it. It, it. It's Chardonnay though that has really shone through. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's what you're um, primarily sort of known for now, yep. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. And so um, so that was your. So sorry, that was your father that yes. bought the land.
1: Yep, yep. And, well, and, well, it that, was his parents who bought the land initially. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And, okay. Uh, your grandfather. Yep. And so it was my grandfather and grandmother, but Dad it took over after my grandfather died, nineteen forty nine. Right. And uh, it's it's Matthew who built it all up. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's um, so you're effectively the third. That's Third right. generation on yep. there,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So so dad married my mother, Melba, in 1958. I came along in 1960 and my sister and two brothers a few years after that. So so we were all born in the 60s and um, at a time when the winery was expanding all the time. There was something, there was always a piece of new machinery. It was great growing up, there was all these... Packing cases that the machines used to arrive in that we could play, and it was it was fantastic. So, we as, as children grew up in a in a wine business, yes, and and we all worked in the vineyard and yeah. the winery on our ho- on our holidays and things like that. So, yeah. so it was very a very good time to be involved in it. And uh, me being the eldest, um, I was the first to go off and uh, I guess get a more formal education in wine. Okay. Which dad was very keen for. Yes. Some or all of us to do, and um, uh, to that end, I ended up going to South Australia to Roseworthy Agricultural College, which has uh, a reputation as one of the best wine schools in the world, and um, very fortunate to get in there and and do very well there. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? Enjoy that? I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. just one of the best things I I had been to high school here in Auckland, um, majored in, in sciences and uh, French as well. So so it was kind of a chosen pathway to get into wine through that way. Mm. I spent a year at Auckland University doing a bit of chemistry uh, before getting accepted to Roseworthy and, right. and then moved over there. So it was a big Big step to go out of the country to a different place, mm. and Roseworthy, uh, fifty kilometres north of Adelaide, right out in the country. I mean, I took my uh, my my wife there to visit last year, and and. and And the realisation came to me as well then that, uh, yeah, it's quite isolated out there. It's in the middle of the countryside. Yeah. And uh, in those days, there was only about 300 students in the whole college. Uh, A third of them were involved in wine. So when you have 100 wine students on a small campus, you get to know Hmm. most of them quite well. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was very lucky to ha- to be in a really good group. And, yeah, uh, they've they've all gone on to do extraordinary things in the Australian and, and New Zealand wine industries. Yeah, nice,
0: nice, and um, so it was. You, you enjoyed. Obviously, you grew up around wine, so you had a whole lot of exposure to things and, and knew a whole lot of whole lot of stuff about wine but the actual formal learning about it you really enjoyed enjoyed that sort of going into. Well I thought
1: wine. I knew something about wine right. until I went to Roseworthy and then you, you kind of realize how much you don't know. Mm. and um, the teachers there were, were very good, very high quality people. I mean the, the head of the school was Dr. Bryce Rankin, the, the head of anology, um, Bob Baker who, who had a lot of experience in the industry. Uh, we, we had Richard smart. As our uh, chief viticultural lecturer, along with Peter Dry, you know, were, were very instrumental in, in bringing Australian viticulture into you know a new century. Um, and picked up a lot of very good ideas there about grape growing, but and, and most particularly about canopy management and how you you grow the the vineyard above the ground. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and and that was very important in the way we subsequently grew our grapes in Kumeu to 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 try and maximise the benefits that 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 we have in that environment. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then uh, straight straight back to Kumeu after or Did you? Yeah, yeah. I graduated, uh, finished there, and at the end of eighty one, graduated eighty two, and came back into the family business, and uh, and we started, you know, making a few changes. My father was very, very forward-thinking, and most people in his uh, situation would have kind of held on to control and and, and just wanted to do things their way, Um, but but he gave me and and subsequently my brothers and uh, sister basically free reign to to try and do things better. Mm -hmm. He said there's no point in getting an education like that and not using it. So uh, a lot of things happened very quickly.
0: Mm. Mm, right. Okay. Okay. So you
1: had lot, lots of ideas, sort of coming back to yeah. Yeah. There were lots of things that we had to change, the way we did things in the vineyard um, and the and the winemaking side of things. Uh, it that was a much slower evolution, but every year we were trying to do something different. Yeah. And then I had the opportunity a few years later to go and work a vintage in Bordeaux. And as I mentioned earlier, we thought at the time that Merlot was going to be our thing. So uh, I managed to get a vintage with uh, Jean-Pierre Mouix in, in Pomerol and Saint-Emilion. And um, among other properties, they, they have Chateau Petrus, which is a you know, very well-known Bordeaux chateau. Um, and the main variety in those regions is Merlot. So I worked there for the 83 vintage and at a place called Chateau Magdalene in Saint-Emilion, which doesn't exist anymore as a chateau. It's now been merged that with the next-door property, bel So it's now called Bellea Monange. But uh, that's on the plateau and the coat of, of Saint-Emilion. And um, 83 was a, a pretty good vintage too. So I was very privileged to be able to look after that yeah. harvest and yeah. uh, learnt a lot. yeah. Yeah. You know, most importantly, I guess the the whole French approach to to winemaking, which is a little bit different to the uh, I guess more science based Australian approach, and being able to mix those those two uh, philosophies, I suppose, when I came home uh, and to look at other varieties and other wine styles and try and make the best of what of what we had uh, was challenging, but a lot of fun too. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Okay. And so was,
0: was that, when did, when did you think that perhaps Merlot wasn't the way to go? Was it after that or was it a while later?
1: Well, um, it coincided with our first vintage of uh, Merlot grapes in 1983. We had just purchased the vineyard from Corbin's Wines who were right. divesting themselves of all their Auckland properties and we, we managed to pick up 100 acres from them uh, and the big attraction was the Merlot. So for many years it 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 was our our main thing, mm. um, but we also planted during that era uh, the, the the these other vineyards with Sauvignon Blanc and with Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Chardonnay, and it was the Chardonnay that, that really shone through. So it uh, every year it just got better and better. Um, by the, the late 80s, we had already established an export market in the UK uh, with some very good people, uh, wine merchants and, uh, and good wine tasters who, who recognised the quality, recognised the potential of it too because mm. it, it really did look a lot like classic white burgundy. And um, at about that time, I also became interested in the whole uh, wine judging scene. And through that, I got introduced to the the then chair of the Institute of Masters of Wine, Sarah Morphew, who came out here to judge at our national wine competition at the Chateau Tongariro in 1986. And uh, judging with her, she, she, she took me aside after one, judging session and said, uh, look, have you ever thought about becoming a master of wine? Because you've got the tasting ability. And I was a bit taken aback by that. Um, but uh, I said, well, no, it's, you know, the MWs. it's the English wine trade. I haven't got time to go and spend time in the UK. And she said, well, well no, we're, we're going to be opening it up soon to the rest of the world and it's going to become a much more international qualification and you need to think about it because I think you'd be a good candidate. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, 1988, when Michael Hillsmith became the first non-British master of wine, um, that Sarah gave me a call and said, look, Michael Hillsmith's done it. You know, you you need to get your essay in and, and have a go. You know, so so I basically got bullied into doing it, and um, I, I I put the SA in, got accepted into the study course. But of course, in those days, it was all run from the UK. I didn't have the ability to go and move to the UK or or do any of that study in that regard. But I uh, got in uh, cahoots with uh, Bob Campbell, the wine writer. Um, because Bob was also interested in doing the the MW um, program, and we got together a small tasting group and started to taste wines. And uh, Sam Weaver, who had just moved to New Zealand f- from the UK and had passed the uh, the um, MW tasting exam, but but not the theory, he very kindly set up tastings for Bob and I to to go through and ask. MW style questions and that type of thing. So it, as it came out, I went and actually set the exam in London in uh, May of 1989. Bob didn't think he was quite ready to do it at that stage and, and, and I thought well I'll, I'll go over there, I need to do some work with our importer and uh, need to spend a bit of time in France again. Um, so I went and did the exam uh, just to see how, how it would go and managed to pass it. So uh, it became New Zealand's first MW. Yeah, well done. Which was um, a bit of a turning point because it, it then introduced me to a lot more wine show judging as well. I got invited to judge in Australia and started to um, judge in that show circuit over there. Yeah which culminated a few years ago in, in being chair of judges at the Adelaide wine show which was you know, f- for me going back to Adelaide and, and being asked to do that was just a huge thrill.
0: Yeah, nice. Nice. And so it must was it quite tricky then doing it back certainly back in um, late 80s doing all the learning remotely back here and sort of knowing what it is
1: you know what level you needed to get to To It was difficult um, we we had access to old exam papers mm. and um, you know we Bob and I getting together you know, kind of helped each other out and talking to people like Sam Weaver and, and Kit Stevens who was an MW who lived in New Zealand then um, he was very very helpful along those lines but it was then being able to taste enough wines because, you know, getting access to the kind of wines that you right. would see in the exam yes. was not always easy. No. Um, and then I did have the opportunity in nineteen eighty. Yeah, just before the exam, I, I I had gone gone back to France and uh, spent a bit of time there as well. you know, going around and tasting, and that was fabulous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good. And so, what did you have to do then to to get your your MW? In those days, it was purely exam based. Mm-hmm. So there were eight papers, uh, three tastings, and five theory. Um, it's all changed around now. That, that uh, the three tasting papers are still uh, there and very important, uh, but I suppose. Even in those days, it was becoming a little bit broader. So, so the wines being tasted in the exam were from all around the world, whereas in previous decades, it was much more focused on the Bordeaux and Burgundy being a, mm-hmm. a UK-based trade qualification. But uh, these days, there is a, it became what, what was known as the uh, dissertation. Now it's a research paper, which, which is like the fifth paper. And that's a bit more like a thesis. Right. Yeah. We we didn't have to go through that mm. Uh, mm. trauma in in my day, as they say, but it was still it was a very difficult exam. It still is, but it's meant to be. It's meant to be yes. uh, an elite exam, a culmination of many years of either experience in the trade or study. I was again fortunate that I was fairly recently out of college, so uh, that academic side of things was was still pretty fresh for me, and so I could uh, write essays and do th- mm. and do things like that in terms of viticulture and winemaking without a problem. For me, the big challenge was the tasting side of things, and that, that, that was always the worry, and I was just delighted when I got through.
0: Yeah, well done. Well done. And so how do you think you then brought that back as well? Because obviously you started getting exposed to um, judging and a lot more wines, and wh- how did that translate back to... Back to home for
1: you. Well, if you if you want to make really good wine, you you need to know what really good wine is, and that that's what the MW study course and and everything leading up to it does, because it exposes you to to the whole world of wine, and you get a a really keen appreciation of, of what's good and what's not so good, what what's um, the top end of the art if you like, and what's the more commercial end. And that really helped us at Cumia River because it made us appreciate what we do well and also what we don't do so well. Mm-hmm. So without that appreciation, I don't think we we would have gone as far or as quickly into Chardonnay as we subsequently mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. We might have stuck with Merlot a bit too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, You know, it's not just me involved. It's uh, my all my family, the the brothers and sister, mother and father at the time, but also uh, a winemaker who's worked with us since the nineteen seventies. Nigel Tibbets, who's still there, has been a very important part of that whole evolution as well. And it's just you know, um, bouncing ideas off these people and and trying to move it forward at, at, at a quicker pace than mm-hmm. w- would generally happen uh, was, w- was really important. And so we, we were doing quite, quite radical things at the time, um, things like barrel fermentation and um, malolactic fermentation for acid reduction, uh, wild yeast fermentation. These were all quite radical um, techniques uh, that, that we were never really taught about at college, but I saw happening when I went to France, and and you know, question: Well, why does it work? How does it work? What's the benefit? All of those things, and and then had the um, the ability and you know the the open-minded attitude of my father, particularly, to, to to try them out, and most of them, well, in fact, just about all of them succeeded. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and and you've obviously had some good success along the way with um, with what you've produced.
1: Yeah, and that was just about immediate. I mean, the first Chimera of a Chardonnay that that showed up as being pretty special was 1985, and we we didn't make a lot of it, and it was the first time we'd, we'd really put the, the malolactic fermentation into effect. At that stage, we we hadn't. Um, Hang on a second. Yes, we, we had started with uh, wild yeast by that stage. So it made an impact and not, not always positive because a lot of people saw the malolactic character as being a fault. I remember being on the panel as an associate. No, I wasn't an associate. I was a judge then. Being, being on the panel that judged it at the um, national wine competition and saw it being canned. Yeah, you know, completely thrown out as as being oxidised. Yeah, you know. right. It. Um, but then a few months later, the wine was still looking good, and mm. uh, it, it it impressed a few other people who who had more experience with that style of wine. And then eighty six came along; it was a bit better. Eighty seven was pivotal. Eighty seven was it was a really good vintage. It was the first time we we had some. Uh, a, a decent amount of crop off a new vineyard that that was on the new lyre trellis to Im- improve the the grapevine canopy, and uh, it it made a big impact when we showed it in the UK, and at that wine show at the London Wine Trade Fair in 1988, we also met the two guys who became our US importers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and at the time we we weren't interested in the U.S. I mean, the U.K. for us was was the ultimate. We'll just concentrate on that. And um, Paul, my younger brother, and I were were there working the stand. And um, these guys came up and said, "Look, we we really like your wine. Uh, we'd like to talk to to you about distribution in the U.S." And um, so. Paul and I. Well, we we might as well talk to them. You know, we'll we'll go out to dinner with them, and uh, and this was uh, Jack Daniels and Wynne Wilson from uh, Wilson Daniels, who had just taken over the distribution for Domaine de la Romani Conti in in the USA, and they had a small a small portfolio, but a very good one, and they wanted us. I mean, they wanted our wine f- for the US. I mean, we we were just blown away, and. Uh, and we we said yes, and and we've basically been with the same company in the US ever since. And that that introduced us to a lot of um, interesting new markets in the US on both coasts. Uh, exposure to some very important wine writers and wine magazines, and since those days too, we we've been um, very well reviewed and. and in publications like the Wine Spectator and the Wine Advocate, and, that, and that's been very important in publicising the, the quality of our wines and, and showing that they really are world class.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, nice, nice. And so it's just continued on from there, really? Is
1: that it, just- it has, it, but, but every, every year, every few years, things change slightly and, uh, and we're always trying to make things better. So um, it evolved from trying to make the best possible Chardonnay we could, which was then just called Cumia River Chardonnay, and that started from the mid-80s, through to planting more vineyards, having to have a, a second label, which initially we called Brejkovic, but then has become what we now know as Cumu Village Chardonnay, and we needed that label to blend down to 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 ensure the quality of Cumu River Chardonnay. But then subsequently, more more vineyards came on. We encouraged a few people around us to to, to grow vines for us, and we started to see differences uh, in quality and style from from these different blocks, and and started rec- to recognize that there are some single vineyards within what we were blending that maybe could stand up on their own. So the f- the first expansion into a single vineyard expression was with Matty's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And this was an old vineyard that, that, that was my father's original multi-variety block that uh, we started to replant in 1990 and it was his last project, he he died in 1992 and um, 93 was the first vintage off that block and and straight away it became obvious that it was special. Mm -hmm. It was 100% Mendoza clone, but uh, almost as importantly, we had the access to some new low-vigor rootstocks that had recently come through quarantine And one of the problems we had up until then was that the rootstocks that we were using were too vigorous. And when you have a rootstock that's too vigorous, the vine grows too much and doesn't ripen properly. So by using low-vigor rootstocks, we could control the vigor a bit more, allow the fruit to ripen, um, and that became evident straight away with this new vineyard, which which after he died, we, we named Matty's Vineyard. And that, that became our first single vineyard. And wine. for listeners, Mate is referring to? That's my father. Yeah. So so his name was Marta Brajkovic. Right. That That's in Croatian. But everybody in New Zealand, you know, the, the Kiwi way, he was just called Matty. Right. Yeah. So yeah. M-A-T-E, Matty. Yeah. And uh, so that that's Matty's vineyard. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and when you're talking about the expansion and,
0: and more blocks and people growing for you, this is all still within in the in the Kumu region we're talking. Or? Yes,
1: yeah, yep. This is only in Kumu. only in Kumu, Yep, yep. In the years leading up to up to that, we we had dabbled in Muller turgar from Gisborne and uh, some Chardonnay from Hawkes Bay from time to time, Sauvignon Blanc from Hawkes Bay as well. But um, our focus was on land that we had already. Uh, Matty's vineyard was the oldest block that we had. We had the um, uh, what we then called the Cumi River block, or the other block, if you like, up in Waitakere Road, which was Merlot. And then we started to plant much more Chardonnay there as well. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, um, other vineyards started to put their hand up, and so yeah, and show that that they were they were good as well. And uh, two of them, uh, Coddington and, and Hunting Hill, reached that um, single vineyard status in 2006 mm-hmm. and, but we could only do that when we had more vineyards on stream to be able to make up the volume for our estate Chardonnay so we had Matty's Vineyard Chardonnay arrived on the scene in 93 at the same time we, we had Cumi River Chardonnay then when we introduced the other two vineyards the Cottington and the Hunting Hill. Uh, we also introduced a new name for Cumia River Chardonnay because you know you, you take these wines around to tasting and and people would say, well, there's the Matty's Vineyard, but but we like the regular one, or we like the ordinary one too, or, or the basic. Um, you know, all of these words we we don't really like when it comes to <laughs> our Chardonnay. So so we came up with the term estate. And the estate Chardonnay is, is a blend, it always has been a blend of, of a number of different vineyards, some of which we own, others that we lease and others, another that we, we purchase from. But because we have a very uh, large say in how these vineyards are run, we, we're very comfortable with using the term "estate" to describe that Chardonnay. So this was the, the kind of the evolution and the establishment of what, of what we know to be terroir. So these vineyard sites are different. They are special. And in the subsequent, you know, well, it's 20 years nearly of, of making these, these styles, um, every year Hunting Hill looks like Hunting Hill. Right. Every year Coddington looks like Coddington. You know, the, the, these are indelible fingerprints that they have yeah. because they come from the same block of land and they run the same way.
0: And have you seen? Are you still using the same vines for on
1: Maddie's production? Matties is all the same. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And so have you seen a change with the maturity of the?
1: Yes. Level? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. we were uh, very concerned a few years ago that Matties might fall over because it it does have some leaf roll virus in it,
0: and. Yes, uh, because vines don't necessarily last forever, do they? No, That's, they don't.
1: No, and. In most New World countries, uh, speaking specifically really about the United States, Australia and New Zealand, um, the economic life of a vineyard has been reckoned to be about 30 to 40 years. And when something like virus appears or something is debilitating the vineyard, we are more likely just to rip it out start again because mm. it, it's had its economic life and, and let's move on. Uh, and to be fair, that that. Way of thinking has led to most of the improvements because there's been always been something better coming along, either a better variety, a better clone, better rootstock. So right. it's the ability to, to to really improve things quickly. So just as
0: a bit of an aside, um, old world f- France n- not not the case, not the
1: case of pulling out or no, because they well they are much more established. Wine region, mm. uh, their big upheaval happened in the 1860s to 1880s with phylloxera, and that gave them the opportunity then to improve things and mm. and to make vineyard management better, choose better rootstocks, and so they they have much more history in that regard. Our our one sector is much younger. We we don't have that kind of history. We don't have the uh, the trial and error uh, period that that they've had but we we do have access to some really good information and science which has helped us jump ahead very quickly and the attitude of you know it's a very new zealand thing uh, that if something's not working we'll change it yep and we'll make it happen and so we we had no hesitation back in those days to to rip something out and start again because mm. the longer you delay it, the longer it's going to take to actually succeed. So yeah. a lot of that happened very quickly. But these days we are realising how um, beneficial something like vine age is and you really do see that effect in a vineyard like Maddie's Vineyard. And so from an attitude a few years ago of, well, we, we're going to need to, pull us out and start again to one of well we need to do everything we can to preserve it because it's it's performing really well and it's just getting better Mm. so um the virus side of things we, we thought contributed to the hen and chicken that, that the Mendoza clone Chardonnay has, but, but we've since proven that that's not the case because we, we now have some virus free Mendoza and it still has hen and chickens, but it ripens a lot earlier because. so, and vine- what's, what's hen and chickens? It's a condition caused at the flowering where the flowering's not complete. And you get a mixture of normal-sized berries alongside uh, small berries. Mm-hmm. And those small berries can be quite concentrated in flavour, sugar, and also in tannin. So so we can get a lot more character out of um, vineyards like that. Um, but these days we, we are more concerned about trunk diseases, and that, that's become more evident in recent times uh, all over the country and we're having to change the way we uh, prune, the way we treat pruning wounds, all that type of thing. Uh, My old teacher, Richard Smart, was warning us about this years ago and it's it's now become a big thing and it's debilitating quite a few vineyards around the country. But we're getting on top of it and with the establishment of new vineyards... Avoiding those problems in 30 or 40 years' time by, so it, by changing things.
0: And are those problems become about because of um, not the best practice when pruning, for instance? Yep. Is it? Right, okay. okay. Exactly.
1: Okay. Right, right. So most vineyards in New Zealand are what they call cane pruned um, and um, in some cases necessitating some fairly large pruning wounds which... Right. And these these large cuts enable uh, fungi, in particular, to get into the vine and can cause the death of certain parts of the vine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a new concept of, of preserving the sap flow. So you actually keep all parts of the the older parts of the vine alive by by maintaining flow to uh, green parts of the vine. And it's uh, it's quite a new philosophy and a way of th- uh, thinking when it comes to pruning. Mm-hmm. We're also having to use a bit more fungicide um, post-pruning because even the small cuts will allow these pathogens into the vine which can cause damage. And so we have to be careful about that and uh, you know, a bit more care and sterility in, in the way we do things of pruning. And it's, it's going to be a long-term thing, but it will... Imp- I have no doubt it's going to improve the vineyard's longevity and uh, ability to produce quality grapes for a much longer period of time. Right, right,
0: very good. And um, so you've you've obviously had you know you've you're, um, got maturity now. Um, you've got a really good place where you are. Um, you've expanded along the way. Anything on the on the horizon? Anything?
1: Yeah, we don't stand still for yeah. a minute. Um, we're under a lot of pressure of urbanisation where we are in Kumu. Uh-huh. uh we, We've already lost some vineyards to, to urban development uh, and we will lose a few more yet. So we had to, a few years ago, look at buying vineyard land somewhere else and we ended up very fortunately again to buy a property in Hawke's Bay that was previously owned by Trinity Hill and had been established in conjunction with uh, Pascal Jolivet from Sancerre. And the attraction for him and them was a vineyard at relatively high altitude for Hawke's Bay. It's between 180 and 200 metres and more importantly it's on a limestone hill. Mm -hmm. And that limestone soil produces grapes that are quite different to what we have here in Cumu and um, yeah, you know, we're very excited by it. We're, um, we're, it was primarily planted to Sauvignon Blanc, but we're gradually fixing that and uh, replanting most of it with Chardonnay and a bit of Pinot Noir. And uh, those, those two varieties, we think, are the best uh, table wine, great varieties in the country. Uh, and certainly the results that we're getting off this new block bear that up. Yeah, it's exciting. It, it, it's really really good fun to, mm. to be involved in something uh, as groundbreaking as that and uh, with a slightly different style, uh, but still using a lot of our techniques that are now tried and true uh, to put our definite thumbprint on it. And uh, so the first vintage we had off that property was in 2018. Which was not an easy vintage. Uh, and the Chardonnay, you know, it's quite a small block there initially, but um, we, we picked it in two hits, about 10 days apart. The first lot was relatively underripe, but it showed very shabby like flinty characters. And then the later pick was a, a lot riper, a bit more peach character coming through. And, and the end wine has ended up being a blend of, of a mixture of those two picks. Well, a few weeks ago, um, it was Jancis Robinson's Wine of the Week. Mm. Yeah first vintage off a new block of wow, land, and, yeah. and just by using our approach to to something that was already established, yeah. we we end up with something that's that's quite special. Yeah, that's cool. And what, what label is that? Are you bringing that up? That's, that's under Kumia River, yep. but uh, the sub-label is Ray's Road. So okay. that, that's the address of the property in, mm. in Raokawa, which is out really in the middle of nowhere. It's just to the west of Hastings, but mm. uh, not far from the... Uh, the end of the uh, Bridgepar triangle and that uh, definitely quite different terroir and that it's not alluvial soils they are it, yeah it's a limestone the soil mm. um, overlaid by some wind-blown clay loose that's uh, and that that clay loose on top has varying depths but but where it's um, pretty close to the limestone you get a, a definite limestone. Type of character coming through in the wine, which is this real mineral, salty, tangy uh, yeah. character that that's gives the palate particularly this electricity that you can't get from other yeah. other terroir.
0: Nice, nice. Well, that sounds like something for um for listeners to to look out
1: for. That oh, it's, it's very very interesting stuff. And yeah. and the other thing that we've been involved with the last few years, which really keeps us uh, very interested, is sparkling wine because we always thought that there were characters in particularly our Pinot, but, but also the Chardonnay grown in Cumieux, but harvested a little bit early, uh, that looked remarkably like champagne. And so um, we st- I started in a small way in 2012 um, and I decided to make it you know, with a full noise method, traditional champagne style with uh, fermentation on yeast, and that has evolved very quickly as well. We've we've been learning a lot. We've been tasting a lot of particularly really good small grower champagnes, and uh, with some very friendly, you know, great advice from our friends around the industry, um, learnt how to make the wine, what what we can do better, um, and that's that's expanding and. Uh, is, I think, going to be very important in the future. Right, yeah. I oh. think New Zealand in general has got a great future in, in, in high-quality sparkling wine. I mean, it already exists, but the volumes are still relatively small. Yes. And the the cost of entry into that market is quite high. You know, the, the equipment required and the time, because there's absolutely no doubt these wines get better and better with time on leaves. And, and we thought... You know, 18 months to two years would be fine. Well, we're up to three years and we're thinking, well, three and a half years is better than three years. And wow, okay. Four years, you know, so the cost of doing that is huge mm. because you, mm. you have to store it. It's the cost of the, you know, the, the capital investment in that stock. Mm. Um, but there's no doubt that it makes better wine.
0: Yeah, nice. Nice. Well, that's going to be um, something to uh, to keep an eye out for as well. Very good. and And you see that expanding... The production expanding
1: for yourself? Your yeah, we too. we have limits. Yeah. more to do with where do we store the wine, <laughs> right? Yeah. we we probably have to build another winery to do it. Um, but the results are, are good, and every vintage is is better than mm. the last one. Mm. Um, and you know, we we do quite a few comparative tastings with with very high quality. Burg- uh, well, with Burgundy in the case of our Chardonnays, but it, with champagne in the case of the sparkling and and we, we compare very favourably, I'm mm. going to say. Very good. And that's available now? Yes. Yep. Yes, we we have the four, uh, 2014 version on the market now. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of it left and early in the new year we'll be going to the 15. Oh, cool. And, and the 15 is a big step up. Yeah, it's,
0: no, nice. It's just
1: looking really good.
0: Yeah, lovely. Very good. And we, we finish on the question. Mm-hmm. If you could have... Any glass of wine with anyone at any time anywhere? Who and where and what and
1: yeah. when would that be? Well, um, if I just take a step back, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with members of my family. And Mum's still there, very much in charge. Uh, my sister Mariana's been working there for twenty years or so in the in the office and in marketing, Paul's and sales and marketing. Milan looks after all the vineyards and all the mechanical side of things, but none of it would have been possible without Dad, because Dad you know, came came from nothing and built up a business that we could all just step into, but each of us in our own way have improved it and taken it forward. Um, he fortunately got to see the early success with Kimi River Chardonnay in those mid-80s, mid you know, the 80s. Seven Chardonnay. He got to Calif- go to California, talk to people over there, meet with our importers. He got to see that uh, success, but unfortunately, he was taken away in 1992 before we really got going. And so, yeah, I'd like to have a drink with him. Mm, mm,
0: nice. Do you know what you would
1: have? I'll be Chardonnay. Yeah, a Chardonnay. And, and our Matty's vineyard, which of course he never got to see. Yeah, yeah, nice. Very nice. So we we now have. Um, yeah, you know, two, two decades or more of of old stock of that wine to show, yeah, and just to see the evolution, but just to see how that wine is now regarded and in some cases uh, revered around the world. Mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. you know, he could he saw the early signs of that. Um, uh, success, but no, no one would have thought we would have got to this. Yeah, level. I yeah, mean, it's just quite, quite extraordinary. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Hey, that's really
0: great. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. Cheers. Very good. Not lovely having you on. We've been speaking with Michael Brakovich from Kumu River Wines, west of Auckland. You can find out more about them at kumu river.co.nz, K U M E U river.co.nz. And be sure to have a listen to some of the other New Zealand wine podcasts with stories from other people in the wine industry here in New Zealand. And check out podcast.nz for other great New Zealand podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Bazebu.com. Let's get your business started. And we look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, Konomai. Bye for now.